Hello, and welcome to the Magical History Tour Podcast. I'm Hollis, your tour guide, and in this episode, we travel to the colonies post-French and Indian War and see what happens when England tries to tighten control over her empire. So let's get started. After the Seven Years' War, everything seems to be going well in the colonies. Everyone's happy to be a part of the British Empire. That's in 1763. Only 12 years later, however, in 1775, many of those same colonists who were so happy to be a part of Britain begin taking up arms to fight for their independence. What happened? Well, some people blame the king and parliament, their colonial policy during that time. Some people also felt that Britain had become rather tyrannical. If you look closely at what went on, though, the British were far from tyrannical, although colonists tended to shout tyranny fairly often in 1775. If you look at it, though, with the exception of slaves, colonists enjoyed more political and personal freedom than any other group of people in Britain's empire. So what happened? It was a combination of a lot of things. Britain needed reform. They reformed the administration, but they didn't do it very well. Also, the colonists got too used to Walpole's salutary neglect that we talked about in the last episode, and they rebel when Britain attempts to exert some control and actually enforce some laws. Finally, the colonists just didn't want the responsibility that came with being a part of the British Empire. Taxes, laws, stuff like that. They wanted to be British subjects, but not have to obey the laws that every other British subject had to obey. Sort of like having their cake and eating it too. Now at this point, Britain was the foremost imperial power on earth, and now that the Seven Years' War is behind her, she begins to reorganize her North American empire. It needed to be done, but it doesn't go over well with the colonists. They don't want to be reorganized. They've actually begun to develop a separate identity from that of the mother country. During the Seven Years' War, though the colonists were very proud of their place in the British Empire, they begin to notice some important differences between themselves and the mother country. The representatives they have from the mother country are the British soldiers. They didn't like them. They considered the British soldiers to be profane, lewd, and violent. They were also kind of shocked at how quickly these supposedly aristocratic officers jumped to administer punishments to keep their soldiers in line. There had been rumors of threats of Britain trying to enslave American colonists, which is sort of ironic since they participated a lot in slavery, but anyway, they had heard that Britain wanted to enslave the colonists, and it was easy to believe in the rumor of a threat when they saw how the British officers treated their subordinates. Part of the reason they see it that way is because if you compare, colonial forces were primarily formed from volunteers and officers really had to be careful with punishments because they had to keep the troops enthusiastic about being there. You can't really punish very well if it's a volunteer because they could just leave. So they're not really used to being punished. So when they see the British regulars being punished, they're kind of shocked. Now the colonial officers also also felt snubbed. They thought the British officers ignored the important role that the Americans had played in the war. And they kind of did. And they kind of did snub. Them. So it's going to be during the French and Indian War that colonists will begin to see themselves as different and distinct from the British. The war will also strengthen their sense of identity. Men who had never been outside of their villages will fight in distant regions with other men from other colonies who are like themselves. That's going to reinforce a nationalist perspective. Between 1735 and 1775, trade within the colonies and between the colonies will increase fourfold. Trade with Britain will only double during that time. 
So you're seeing a lot more trade between the colonies. People and ideas are beginning to move about. Stagecoach lines will begin operations in the 1750s, and roads will be improved in order to transport the mail more effectively, but also to transport people and ideas. Britain goes into economic and social shock after the War for Empire, which increased British national debt by at least 60 million pounds. So what they're going to do is try to tax the colonists. And the colonists don't have representation in Parliament, so it's going to be a big deal. Now, at the end of the war, the British will also leave about 10,000 troops stationed in the colonies to do things like quell Native American uprisings, to stifle any discontent among the French and the Spanish populations in Quebec and Florida that they had taken over. If you recall from the last episode, William Pitt had promised the colonists that the king would pay for the war. They would not have to pay for it afterwards through taxes. But the cost of the war, plus the expense of the troops being stationed there is going to leave this huge debt and a really big need for money to come in. So the Chancellor of the Exchequer at this time is a man named George Greenville, and he decided to get the money that they needed from America, since the average Englishman paid 26 times as much in taxes each year as the average American colonist paid. He had initially sent warships to capture American smugglers, as well as tighten the enforcement of the Navigation Acts that wasn't working. So in 1764, he pushed the Sugar Act through Parliament. Now, the Sugar Act actually cut the import tax on molasses. Remember the Molasses Act from the last episode put a small tax on French molasses? Well, this actually cuts the amount of tax, but it did place a tax on all sugar and other goods imported into the colonies. It also revitalized the customs service. That's going to introduce stricter registration procedures for ships, and they added more officers to customs, which is going to keep people from being able to smuggle as easily. Now, in all reality, the tax, like I said, is actually less than the one that's on the books at the time. But the problem is that the original tax had not really been enforced, and now they were enforcing a tax. Britain knew that the colonists would be upset about this, so that legislation also increased the jurisdiction of the Vice Admiralty Court at Halifax. The Vice Admiralty Court was where customs cases were heard. So if you got caught smuggling or something like that, you would be sent to that court. People hated that court because in the court at Halifax, there was no presumption of innocence. They didn't presume you innocent and have to prove you guilty. Also, the accused had no right to a jury trial. Not only would those measures affect the income of American merchants with the tax, but a lot of those people were doing a bit of smuggling on the side and all of those regulations are going to cut off their smuggling operations. Typically, taxes are raised during the war, and colonial taxes had been as well, but they were not lowered. They remained at an all-time high, and a lot of people were very vocal in their protests of these issues, especially in Boston, where a boycott of certain English imports was proposed. A Massachusetts lawyer named James Otis Jr. argued that there could be no taxation without representation. But Greenville said it's only fair that the colonists help pay for the cost of empire. He pointed out that taxes were actually much lower in the colonies than they were in the mother country. And he felt that the colonists simply did not want to pay any taxes, that they just wanted to enjoy the benefits of being a part of the British Empire at no cost. Some of what he said was probably correct, and the Sugar Act protest was probably mostly self-interest, but there were two principles at stake. If you recall the Molasses Act of 1733, that was done to regulate trade. 
and the colonists felt that it was perfectly legitimate. It also helped that they didn't really collect the tax, but it was a trade regulation. That was fine for the colonists. But the Sugar Act's goal, however, was to raise money. The official title of the Sugar Act is actually the American Revenue Act. So Americans felt that they should be able to consent to taxes that are levied on them, but they're not represented in Parliament at all. The second issue is that it was important that the right of a British subject to be tried for a crime before a jury of his peers or social equals be upheld. The vice admiralty courts denied colonists this ancient right. About this time, Greenville passed a Currency Act that will prohibit the colonies from making paper money, and it said that all payment for British goods had to be made in gold or silver or a commodity like tobacco. That's going to dry up a lot of the American commerce. He also passed a Quartering Act at this time that said the colonies had to pay for and house the British troops, too. Now, this first quartering act is not the one that said they had to house them in their homes, just that they had to pay for their housing. So that meant a tax to pay for the troops' housing. The problem is that the people didn't really want the troops there. Not caring that the colonists were upset by the Sugar Act, he will follow that with something called the Stamp Act in 1765. The colonists already paid a stamp tax. They'd paid it since 1694. Basically, in order to be legal, any document, like a will or a bill of sale, uh, certain licenses and deeds, insurance policies, and other contracts had to be inscribed on paper that was embossed with a government stamp. So when you think of stamp tax, a lot of times people think, oh, stamp to mail, mail stuff. But that's not what it is. It's like the paper had a, a raised embossment on it with a seal, and you had to put certain things on that paper. And so buying the paper constituted payment of a tax. So for example, a marriage license wasn't legitimate if it was not on that paper. A contract, if it was written on regular paper, was not enforceable. You could take it to court if someone bought a horse from you and you wrote up a bill of sale on a piece of regular paper and then they didn't finish paying for the horse and they just left. You could take them to court, but if you submit the regular paper to the court, it's not going to be enforceable. It had to be on that stamped paper. Greenville's act will go further than the English law. It will require that in addition to all legal documents, all newspapers, handbills, pamphlets, and even things like playing cards were to be printed on the embossed government paper. This was the first attempt by Parliament to place a direct tax, an internal tax, specifically on American goods rather than an indirect or external tax on imports and exports, and it was not received well. The conditions of the lower class in Boston had worsened, and many were resentful. On August 14, 1765, a large crowd assembled and strung up effigies of several British officials, including Andrew Oliver, the stamp distributor. They then vandalized Oliver's office and home. This was just one of the popular protests that led to the resignation of many British tax officials. Some groups wanted to moderate the resistance movement by seizing control of it. These Sons of Liberty encouraged moderate forms of protest, circulating pamphlets and petitions, and encouraging crowd action only as a last resort. They called for a boycott of British goods. Some of the Sons did take violent action. When the stamped paper was delivered to warehouses in port cities, mobs broke 
broken and lit bonfires. Americans had begun to take certain things for granted. Among them, self-government, equality of economic opportunity, religious freedom, and territorial expansion. They felt that these things were now being threatened by Parliament's attempts to tighten control over the colonies. Americans who opposed British policies began to call themselves Whigs, who were originally in British government, people who opposed the king having so much power. And they called supporters of Parliament Tories, which was originally a group that felt the king should have more power than Parliament. So we'll see those again later. Not only that, but it highlights problems that the colonists had with constitutional issues. At the time, even though they elected their assemblies, the colonists could not vote in British elections. The government argued that they were still subject to the acts of parliament because of virtual representation. That is the idea that members of parliament were thought to represent not just their districts, but all citizens of the empire. A colonist by the name of Daniel Delaney disagreed. He printed a pamphlet that argued that Americans were members of a separate political community and Parliament could not impose tax on them. He argued for actual representation. He claimed that there must be a direct relationship between citizens and their representatives. Many felt that only the colonial assemblies could enact such taxes within their boundaries because they elected their colonial assemblies. Now, politically, the Stamp Act was kind of stupid because the burden of the tax fell mostly on those people who were best able to stir up a fuss. Newspaper editors, printers, lawyers, and even tavern keepers were key figures in every town and neighborhood, and in the cities, there were a lot of them. They could meet, they could cooperate, they could have an impact, and they're actually going to win the support of a lot of working people. In October of 1765, delegates from nine of the colonies will meet in what is known as the Stamp Act Congress in New York City. New Hampshire and Georgia declined the invitation to attend, and the governors of Virginia and North Carolina will prevent their delegates from accepting. So only nine of the colonies were represented. They passed a set of resolutions denying Parliament's right to tax the colonists, arguing that taxation required representation. They also agreed to stop any importation from Britain until the acts were repealed. Still, they were moderate in their stance, declaring that the colonies owed a due subordination to measures that fell within Parliament's authority. So they say, yes, Parliament has a right to tell us what to do, but not in this case. <laughs> so this isn't rebellious really yet. It's going to diffuse the radicals and you have very few mob attacks as a result because they're very calm about it. Now, by this time, most of the stamp distributors had resigned or left town, and that left it impossible for Britain to actually enforce the Stamp Act. British merchants were very worried about the effects that the non-importation movement would have. So in March of 1766, Parliament repealed the Stamp Act and reduced the tax under the Sugar Act. This led the colonies to rejoice, and the non-importation associations that had been set up were disbanded. The Stamp Act Congress was a turning point because the colonists learned that they had much greater strength when they acted as a group. No one seemed to pay attention to the fact that the repeal was coupled with a new act called the Declaratory Act. So as not to appear weak, Parliament passed this act that affirmed its full authority to make laws binding the colonies, quote, in all cases whatsoever. So this signaled that the conflict was not really yet resolved only postponed. It's kind of like they said, we're going to reduce these taxes and we're going to repeal this, but we don't have to. And you have to know that if we wanted to do it, we could. So unfortunately for Britain, in the 1760s, you have a rapid turnover of government leaders, and that made it very difficult for them to form consistent policy towards the colonies. You had one guy, Grenville, Rockingham will take over after him, and then a man named Charles Townsend will come into the role of treasury chief. And they all dealt with the colonies differently. But when Townsend 
Townsend comes into the role of Treasury Chief. England is having lots of problems. They have high unemployment, rioting over high prices, and tax protests. On top of this, the large landowners force a bill through Parliament that cut their own taxes by 25%, basically helping themselves. At the same time, this new Treasury Chief is trying to deal with the national debt, and he's got a whole lot less money to deal with. So he's much more worried about discontent on the home continent in his backyard than about unrest in the colonies that he just kind of hears about. So in June of 1767, he proposes a new revenue measure for the colonies that places import tax on commodities such as lead, glass, paint, paper, and tea. It's called the Townsend Acts. Some people will warn that this is Britain's conspiracy to suppress American liberties. That idea is reinforced by how deliberately and stringently the Revenue Acts were enforced. He will also establish new vice admiralty courts in Boston, Philadelphia, and Charleston, in addition to the one that's already in Halifax. He also suspended the New York Assembly because they had refused to vote public funds to support the British troops that were garrisoned in the colony. And until they relented, he said they would no longer be represented. Non-importation and non-consumption associations revived, drawing up a long list of British products to boycott. These became the main weapon of the resistance movement, the boycott. They coerce merchants to stop importing British goods. They publish the names of non-cooperative importers and retailers, and those people would then become the object of protesters, who often resorted to violence. So coercion is also a big part of the movement, but boycotting becomes the main resistance, the main weapon of the resistance movement. Now, eventually, they do repeal the Townsend duties in 1770. However, they will leave a tax on tea as sort of a mini declaratory act to show that Parliament still claimed its right to tax the colonies. But before the Townsend duties were repealed, you did have some agitation aside from the non-importation boycotts within the colonies. Women will organize in support of the boycott, and colonial papers will pay a lot of attention to groups such as the Daughters of Liberty, who organized spinning and weaving bees to produce homespun cloth for local consumption so they didn't have to buy cloth from Britain, they could boycott it. Other women renounced silk and satin, and they pledged to quit serving tea to their husbands, things like that. The Virginia House of Burgesses in May of 1769 will strengthen the non-importation movement when they enacted the very first provincial legislation that banned the importation of goods that were listed in the Townsend Act. So it's official. They aren't just like all getting together and boycotting. They are officially passing a law banning these things. All of the colonies but New Hampshire will enact similar associations over the next few months. Boston and Massachusetts were at the center of the agitation over the Townsend Revenue Acts. And in February of 1768, the Massachusetts House of Representatives approved a letter to the speakers of the other provincial assemblies. It was drawn up by Samuel Adams and James Otis. And it was really more of a propaganda device than anything. It had very little practical significance. All it did was denounce the Revenue Acts. It attacked the British plan to make royal officials independent of colonial assemblies. So basically the British crown was going to pay the royal officials instead of the assembly so that the assemblies didn't have control over them. And they urged the colonies to find a way to work with one another. When this happened, the king dissolved the legislature, blaming the letter for stirring up rebellion. The other colonial governors were told to do the same if their assemblies endorsed the letter. Of course, before this demand actually reached America, 
New Hampshire, New Jersey, and Connecticut had all commended Massachusetts for the letter. Virginia had even sent a circular letter encouraging a union between the colonies and urging a common action against the British. Now, at this time that all this is going on, Boston is being threatened by mob rule. Customs officials were enforcing the law both for smugglers and for honest traders, and this made everyone mad. When John Hancock's sloop was seized for non-payment of duties, the officials were assaulted by a crowd and forced to flee the city. In September, there was a Boston town meeting called, and at that town meeting, the people were called on to arm themselves. The British freaked out about this. They still feared mob rule, and they decided to occupy Boston with infantry and artillery regiments on October 1st, 1768. This action will actually add greatly to the tension, and it will lose the British any goodwill and any respect that they had once held. The British troops that were stationed in the colonies were the object of scorn and hostility over the next two years. In New York City, there were regular conflicts between soldiers and radicals. Confrontations will also take place in Boston. Samuel Adams will play up reports and rumors of soldiers harassing women and picking fights or taunting residents, and soldiers were regularly hauled into courts, and local courts had a very unfriendly attitude toward these soldiers. On March 5, 1770, a guard who was at the Customs House began being taunted by a crowd. A captain, British captain, and seven soldiers went to help him, but they were pelted by stones and snowballs. Without orders, the nervous soldiers began to fire on the crowd. They killed five immediately and they wounded six, two of whom died later. The soldiers were able to escape to their barracks, but a mob formed in the streets demanding vengeance. Thomas Hutchinson, the governor of Massachusetts at the time, ordered British troops out of Boston, more for their safety than anything. This was the infamous Boston Massacre, made famous by the circulation of a very inflammatory print by Paul Revere that showed the British firing on a crowd of unresisting civilians. Now that incident inflamed a lot of people, but the Boston Massacre also forced a lot of people to realize that relations with the mother country had really deteriorated. And because of that, a lot of them will step back from resistance. They're not really ready to take that next step of resistance. So the Boston Massacre actually causes the resistance movement to sort of pause. Resistance also slowed with the news that Parliament had repealed most of the Townsend Revenue Acts on March 5th of 1770, which happened to be the same day that the massacre occurred. Everything was quiet for a few years until Parliament annoyed the colonists again in 1770 with a tea act, but there were several incidents during this time period that showed that all was not perfectly fine. In June of 1772, a royal vessel called the Gaspé spotted a boat that they suspected of smuggling, and they chased it toward Providence, Rhode Island. Unfortunately for the Gaspé, it ran aground a few miles from shore. The crew supposedly went ashore and seized local chickens and hogs and sheep to eat, so in the night, a group of locals went aboard, shot the captain, put the crew ashore, and burned the boat to the waterline. This was considered an act of rebellion because the ship was a royal vessel. Protests were formed when British officials tried to remove the suspects back to England for trial. Sam Adams will also organize a committee of correspondence that becomes popular in the colonies so that many similar committees will spring up all over. For the most part, these committees were supposed to address American grievances and also form a network to pass information and foment rebellion. So by the mid-1770s, a growing number of Americans are aware of the constitutional disputes that have been going on, and they're angry with what colonial authorities are allegedly trying to do. Next week, we'll talk about how the Tea Act revives a lot of rebellion and will descend into revolution. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and recommend the Magical History Tour podcast to a friend.